Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got you now for an hour of science, and I have some of my favorite team members on the line with me now. Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. How are you, pal? I'm pretty good. Yeah, yeah. it's a nice sunny day out there. We walk the dog, so all is well. All is well. Dr. Jen, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane, and, and said dog is sound asleep at my feet, so if you hear any, you know, excited yelps, they're dream yelps. Yeah, every time I see pictures of you guys and your dog online, it's usually the dog somewhat, in some way, submerged in water. <laughs> <laughs> Hence why I can smell wet dog at my feet, she loves the water. Good segue, speaking of wet dogs, Chris KP, good morning. I thought you'd say, speaking of Jen's feet, this is, this is much, less, <laughs> much less weird than it could have been. Thank there you. There were so many options available. <laughs> How are you, buddy? I'm good, I'm good, and, and I concur, uh, not so much with the wet dog, although I do frequently have one snoring at my feet, but it is a lovely day. Mm. Yeah, it rained a bit last night, but it looks like it's uh, working to be a pretty, pretty fine one, pretty fine one. Now, we've got some uh, news first up, folks, and then we've got our three guests we're going to be speaking of, some really interesting topics today, actually, I'm very excited about today. It's going to be a very cool show, hopefully, but before we do that, uh, some news from the team. Uh, Chris KB, do you want to start us off? I can happily. Um, I, uh, I discovered a, a nice little bit of work coming out of, uh, out of the University of Jena, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, in, uh, in Europe. So basically they discovered 80, about 80 new species of bacteria, which is in itself kind of hmm. cool. I guess I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how commonly people discover bacteria, but that's quite a lot. Um, and these, these are aquatic bacteria. Uh, and they've been cultivating them in order to see how they behave and what they do, etc. They found that they produce a previously unknown group of compounds, but they are similar to known signaling compounds that microorganisms use to sort of communicate with each other. So they had a crack at going, well, they, they look kind of like these. Maybe that's what they do. And so they started exploring the impact that they had on other other, um, other microorganisms. What they found um, is that they do, in fact promote the growth of a roseobacter bacteria species. Now, that in itself is a bit interesting. What's really interesting, though, is that the uh, is that the roseobacter bacteria produces an antibiotic, but it happens to be an antibiotic that this new bacteria they found, this Stelleria bacteria, is resistant to. Hmm. So it produces an antibiotic that makes no real difference, um, <laughs> but it does make a difference to other bacteria. So what you've got, is this new Stelleria bacteria producing chemicals that promote the growth of a, of a Roseobacter bacteria, which produces antibiotics, which inhibit the growth of other bacteria. And therefore, your Stelleria bacteria can basically just, you know, do what they want. They've, been, they've basically made their own garden and nobody else is allowed in. Wow. How good is yeah, that? I mean, they're, cool they're, 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 somewhat deliberately manipulating the entire nature of the biofilm that they not only live in, but in fact are part of. Hmm. 
Well, let me give you a quick bit of science from me today. And normally I don't get time for news, but I've got to chuck this one in. You know when you're driving the car and you've got a passenger and the passenger looks over at your uh, speed and they think you're going at a different speed to what the driver thinks? This is what we call mm. parallax error. You know, it's where My both kids of us do it yes. all the time. Yeah, you know, we're, we're Dad, both... you're driving too fast. Dad, yeah. you're over the speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> and we... <laughs> Probably true in your case, Dr. Yon. Uh, but, but we... But we have this thing where, you know, two different observers often will see these things in a row in different ways. And the easiest way to sort of to see this is to, you know, poke a finger up in front of your face, close one eye, then close the other eye, and look at where that finger sits relative to the background or, you know, things in on the other side of the room. Well, there is... Uh, a uh, data coming back at the moment from the New Horizons um, craft, which shows this on a very, very large scale. So one of the things we know is that if you look at uh, stars in the sky, when the Earth is on one side of its orbit around the sun compared to the other side, if you use very, very sophisticated instruments, you can see this same parallax error and distant stars look like they're in you know different locations relative to close stars but you can't see it by eye it's just the change is too small because these stars are just so bloody far away well new horizons is now so far away from earth after going past pluto some years ago in fact it's about six and a half light hours away that's how long it takes to get a signal to the the craft and back that or, or one way that in a couple of images it took recently and sent back of Proxima Centauri, so the closest star to Earth, it looks like the stars in a different location compared to what we see from Earth. This is the first time we've actually wow. been able to do this and, and actually look at it visual, visually with the, with the naked eye and say, yep, that star's in the wrong spot. And so we're seeing that parallax error as a result of pictures sent back by the New Horizons uh, craft, which I think is wild. And it's yeah. even wilder the fact that it's so damn far away that it takes over six hours for a signal to get to us from, from that craft at the speed of light. So do the numbers on that, folks. It's about 7 sure? billion kilometres. And Shane, you sure it's not just because the stars chose to move a little bit? It's possible, Jen. It's possible. <laughs> we'll put that, we'll put that in the, uh, in the highly unlikely but possible box. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be much happier with that solution. That'd be a really satisfying one. The stars are just screwing with us. <laughs> They're just screwing with us. Someone's, yeah, or someone, someone accidentally bumped the camera when they took the photo. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, super cool stuff. Great to see this high-res uh, images coming back from uh, craft so far, so far away. Actually, it's uh, it's incredible. So, anyway, uh, Dr. Jim, what do you got for us? Oh, now you've made me think of a, a space segue. But uh, you know, I don't think I know anyone who really buys the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing. But I think probably everyone would agree that there are some differences between the sexes. Correct? Yeah, there's certain men we want to put on Mars. Ah. Uh- I'm not going to fall for that trap. <laughs> so we, I think most people would agree that there are some differences, which is why... There are some key differences. <laughs> which is why it came as a huge shock uh, when we found out the truth about what was going on in biomedical studies. So back in 2009, this very important paper came out which looked at about, I think it was nearly 850 studies across 10 different biomedical disciplines. And they found out that only 28% of those studied those studies included both male and female subjects, hmm. which is crazy because it means we're missing out on this huge it's picture very weird. of what's going on. It's very weird. And apparently the argument was that 
Well, females are much harder to study because they're much more variable than males as a result of their hormones. But that'd be uh, that'd be okay if that was in the if that was in the uh, in the paper, wouldn't it? But if, if the study said, look, we recognise there's a weakness here because we didn't have very many female you know subjects. Totally, but it's been, yeah. it's been since shown that, that females aren't more variable at all. So anyway, yeah. this, is a, this, <laughs> okay, is a big, yeah. this is a big hoo-ha in 2009, and as a direct result, it took them a while, but as a result, um, the US National Institute of Health Group, in 2016, they instituted a new policy, and the policy was called Sex as a Biological Variable. And essentially, any researchers funded by that body had to include both males and females in their research unless they could come up with a very convincing argument otherwise. And so this week, the important follow-up paper came out saying, well, it's been 10 years. Now, let's look at what was published in 2019 and see if there's been any improvement. And so they looked at 700-odd papers, and I think they managed to find papers from nine of the original 10 biomedical uh, disciplines. And hallelujah, they found that now 49%, so still less than half. So close. (laughs) 49% of the studies included both males and females. In behavioural studies, it was up as high as 80%. And so they basically said, isn't this great? Six out of nine fields have showed a significant improvement. But I've got to tell you two really bad things. Any study that still only used one gender, they didn't find that any of them provided any rationale at all for why they did it. And even worse, a whole lot of the studies that did include both sexes in their research didn't actually say whether they analysed whether there were any differences in their results between the sexes, which just seems mm. nonsensical. Why well, include both if you're not going to test if that if that variable has an effect? So I feel like we're still a very yeah, long yeah. way well, I mean, for one thing, uh, my understanding is that the majority of uh, mice used in, in, in mice models in experiments are all male. Um, almost all the mice used are male, which is bizarre. But if you, if you think about it, uh, first of all, um, drugs affect men and, you know, um, the sexes differently depending um, exactly. on your sex. Um, second, there are a whole other things that, you know, affect uh, – so if you have a uterus um, – Versus if you don't have a uterus, drugs will affect you in different ways and, and have different results. And then there's just a whole lot of conditions that, you know, affect, um, males and females differently depending, you know, depending on how you have them. And, and, and even things like some cancer treatments, all sorts of things. So the idea that you just pick, pick half of the group or, you know, less than half, mm. um, and focus on that is just, you know, frankly, you know, a bit delusional, I think, you know, especially when you're seeking treatments for one of the sexes. You know, this is just, bizarre, truly bizarre. Yeah. It yeah. seems crazy to me. So I'm glad there's been an improvement, but I think it's still a pretty long way to go. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, academia is just such a powerhouse of equality. I think, uh, I, don't know <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Jen. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> As a woman in academia, I will keep my lips tightly shut, shall I, so I don't rant for the rest of the show. Speaking of equality, Dr. Ewan, (laughs) what do you got? So I want to talk about the importance of parenting and uh, big brains and how it might affect your life, um, I guess, in general. So it's obviously fascinated uh, scientists for a long time about intelligence, you know, what factors affect intelligence um, and the importance of factors that might shape the development of the brain. And so bear in mind, the brain is a really costly organ. So it's this big thing in our bodies and it uses a huge amount of energy. And so when I say huge, 
it's about 20% or so for adults. But for kids, it can be up to about 40% or so of your daily calorie use, okay? So these things are hungry. Hmm. And when and when you first start out with them, they're pretty much empty vessels, okay? So there's not much going on. And so there's a really interesting study that came out um, of the philosophic, Philosophical Transactions of London, and it was looking at, um, I guess, intelligence, but in birds. And so I'm sure many of you know that crows, as an example, are known to be super smart birds. And so what they wanted to do was test the importance of parenting in affecting brain um, capacity, uh, intelligence, and so forth. And so what they did was they looked at a group of birds called corvids, which includes the jays, um, uh, ravens, crows, and so forth, and compared that with several thousand other birds, so songbirds. And sure enough, what they found was with corvids, they tend to spend a lot longer with their parents. And so when I say longer, several years. And so that's the equivalent of your teenager, in fact, not leaving home until they're probably about 20 for a human. So, so situation spend- normal then. Yeah, well, situation normal now, <laughs> prior to house prices going up and so forth. But, um, so they're spending a huge amount of time with their parents compared to the average bird. And what they showed was that these birds are really good at um, solving tasks if they spend longer with their parents. So the birds, wow. the young birds, have spent longer with their parents. Um, they looked at um, tool use. They looked at their abilities to solve problems. And the birds that spent longer with their parents... Actually, um, not only did they obviously um, have the ability to solve tasks easier, but they were also likely to go on, um, they were more likely to go on to have their own families and to live longer. So there's clearly a benefit here of parents investing in in, in their young, um, which, you know, makes sense. Of course, we all know as, as parents ourselves that, you know, if you invest in your child, there's evidence, of course, to suggest that that's going to have a lifelong benefit to them in terms of their brain development and a whole range of other benefits beyond that. Um, and they've shown that in, in this case with birds as well, with, with the corvids. So I think it's a really fascinating study to show just how important parenting is in shaping the, um, the development of the brain. And so, you know, there's all these series about how the brain develops, but this one is actually compatible with a large number of theories in that yeah, the longer you can spend with your parents and the more that your parents invest in you, the more likely it is that your brain is going to develop and allow you to, you know, reach your full potential, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to see these effects in birds. Like, uh, they're such, you know, phenomenal creatures. And some yeah. of them do such smart things, like really incredibly mm-hmm. smart things that we, in the past, like to assign to us as being special. But uh, yeah. you see so many of them in, in some of the birds. Yeah, business. I mean, I think... I think the traffic light example is one of my all-time favourites, right? Yeah. Where the crow, crows that have learned to crack nuts using traffic lights so that they, you know, can pick the nuts up, you know, when it's red and not and not have any danger um, mm. getting run over. So yeah, highly intelligent. Yeah, and was 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 there any was there any um any detail in that study about the if if these corvids weren't with their parents for as long, what they missed out on? Or was it just problem solving? It was I think it's just yeah, just um, problem solving. So they looked at within yeah. species, obviously. So the the, the birds mm. that spent longer and their parents invested more in them. Um, they did better. So there's mm. clearly some benefit. And, and and they did say that, you know, <laughs> when they were trying to do you know tool use as an example, so that you know they get thin sticks, as in the case of the crows, and they put, they, they sort of push them into into sticks and try and pull out grubs. You know, they stuffed it up over and over and over again. And it mm. took them lots of goes, and their parents actually provided them lots of food to get them through that period where they were otherwise, you know, going to go hungry. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, the parents have to basically, you know, trade off, okay, Junior's taking a long time to get this, but it's going to be worth it for us in the end, right? up in the so- long run. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. On the line now, we had Rod Fincham from the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Queensland. Rod, welcome to Einstein and Gogo. How are you going? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now we we've uh, got you on the line because there's some important work that's come out over the last, I guess, a uh, few weeks, months, with regards to some of the uh, you know, species that are endangered and so forth across the country. And one that I hadn't heard about this in particular, but that that you've been looking at is the native guava tree. Before we get into the the causes and problems here, just give us a bit of a sort of minute on what what this tree is where we find it um how widespread it is and so forth uh well it's a member of the myrtaceae which is relevant to the to the disease we'll be talking about uh because that disease only affects this family but um some of your listeners will know it's probably the most important tree family in australia uh it includes eucalyptus mm-hmm. uh barks tea trees um, and they're just the species from the open forest. But in the rainforest, there's a whole suite of myrtaceae that might be a little less familiar, but think broadly lily pillies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, little succ- succulent-fruited uh, species. And there's just a plethora of these things in the Australian rainforest. Mm. And they're actually quite hard to identify, um, but they're all unique in their forms and... Um, and part of the really rich diversity of the Australian rainforest. Mm. Um, and um, I don't know how good your botany is, but myrtaceae, the first thing you do to recognise a myrtaceae is grab the leaves, crush them up, and you don't use your eyes, you use your nose, and right. you smell that, the scent, which mm. is, um, you know, with eucalyptus is very distinctive, but for the other myrtaceae, it's always present. They have these oil glands in the leaves that give them a unique and generally very pleasant smell. Um, so the rainforest uh, myrtaceae are their own sort of lineages within that big family, and one of them is the, what we call the native guava. And uh, the commercial guava is also in the myrtaceae from South America, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. a native species probably obscure to most people, but it was extremely common uh, where it occurred from Newcastle in sort of central New South Wales, mm to Gympie in southeastern Queensland. Um, it, it was one of those things that did fairly well out of sort of rainforest uh, disturbance. Uh, so it would grow as a regrowth tree in paddocks in northern New South Wales. Extremely common. Hmm. Um, I suggested so, to someone um, 10 or 12 years ago that it was about to go extinct. They would have, well, they would have laughed at yeah. you. So, so, what, maybe a bit, yeah, so, so, what, so what, what's happened now? There's been a, a particular... Um, contagion that's come in and, uh, you know, been very problematic for these trees. And this is relatively recent, I understand, sort of in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, what, what's, what's happened? Well, this weird rust, it's a fungal, a rust, which is a type of fungus. It turned up in Australia in 2008 and it just spread on the wind and, um, it's, very topical, isn't it? Talking about disease at the mm. moment, but pretty much the same phenomenon. You get, um, with globalization, you've got unprecedented sort of transport, um, capacity around the globe. 
um, with um, um, commercialization um, and uh, growing guavas, for example, in Jamaica and South America, something comes out of the wild, um, hybridizes or otherwise um, evolves mm -hmm. uh, a new form, so uh, which is particularly virulent in uh, countries where you've got naive hosts, so the hosts aren't used to that strain. And it found its way across the Pacific. We can't isolate what that rust species is in the wild from, from South America where it came from. And so we're dealing with an, a novel organism, um, which mm. is particularly and absolutely unpredictably, it's causing unprecedented havoc with this a uh, very diverse family of Australian Mertaceae, and it's not just the guava. It's a whole bunch of things that are really radically affected. And, and um, you know, we've thrown a lot at this continent in the last 200 years, haven't we? We've cleared the bush with, mm, you know, mm. full of feral animals and weeds. Um, and yet it's remarkable how few plant species uh, are threatened by extinction, you know, right on the brink of extinction. And then along comes this novel organism, it's literally, it appears as a sort of radioactive dust, like right, right. bright glowing yellow, and um, it's causing, going to cause the extinction of uh, between five and ten species within mm. the next, um, so it's an unprecedented sort of impact. Mm. Now, now, my understanding is, um, you know, as you say, that obviously this this particular plant is being Pushed to the point of extinction, but there is there is a process going on at the moment. I understand to actually try and rescue and establish, I guess, a bit of a you know a, an arc population of these plants. How's that going? Is that uh, something that's going to be feasible and successful? Do you think? Well, the first thing to do is to work out. You know, it's a very diverse family, so there's a lot of work to be done to know how the disease is operating in the wild, um, because there might be you know genotypes of some species that are resistant. There might be microhabitats which are beyond the reach of the rust. So we need to do that first. But for those species that we're pretty convinced they're imminently going to, going to go extinct in the wild, what are we going to do about it? Well, it's a tricky thing. We can cultivate them, no problem, mm -hmm. um, but you spray them with fungicide. So you can grow them in a nursery or, or indeed a garden with fungicide. But one of the things we're playing with is trying to find locations um, beyond the reach of the rust. The rust runs out of steam when the humidity gets too low. Mm -hmm. So we're just um, exploring the possibility of where those locations are that might be safe refugia um, to grow these things um, in um, translocated yeah. situations in it gardens. Is the rust yep. is the rust only being tr transmitted by the trees that it's um, affecting in this way, or will we do we find this bacteria, you know, throughout the the ecosystem in in a sense? So it doesn't really matter whether these some of these trees go extinct; it'll still be there. So if we try and reintroduce, you know, unaffected trees, they'll end up with the same endpoint. Is that is that the scenario? Do we know? Yeah, as far as we know, um, the rust. It hasn't reached Western Australia yet, so that's a big, you mm -hmm. know, dispersed um, gap, if you like. It's got to get, get across the deserts. It doesn't like dry environments, so it grows in relatively humid environments. It's in Darwin, though, mm -hmm. and uh, far as we know, it's it's spread on the wind and it's pervasive in the places where it can proliferate. Um, so, yeah, 
there's no, there doesn't, quarantining certain areas doesn't seem to be the strategy. Like it's, it gets there on the wind. Mm. Yeah. Do, does it look like the, the rust will start affecting other plant species as well, or do you think it's sort of reaching its end point with these particular types of tree? Um, well, that's a very good question and, and something that um, we're going to have to um, leave to further survey. It seems to be these rainforest things are the most severely affected. Mm. You know, there was a flurry of um, interest in it when we when when it arrived, and we thought it might affect commercial species like eucalyptus, which of yep. course is important for the tree. It doesn't seem it does affect eucalyptus, but it just doesn't seem to be as nasty for those um, for those genera as it is for some of these rainforest things. But you know, maybe also the disease is um, evolving as it goes and uh, will become. Um, yeah, more virulent than other mm. species. Mm. Rod, just before I let you go, is there um, is there a sort of a, a tech plan from our sort of more, you know, biological scientists in terms of trying to actually stop the the bacteria itself and kill it off? I mean, beyond just the insecticides, you know, actually trying to really knock this thing out. Is that is that happening as well? I can't see how that's possible. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, think. Think COVID, yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, not, not dissimilar. <laughs> like, yep. uh, it's everywhere. It's spreading. It's it's very infectious. Yeah, um, and uh, so I think it's more about playing with um, trying to find wild strains of these things that are resistant, yep. and trying to find places where we can rescue these things. Home gardeners will play a role because mm. it's it, if you're prepared to use fungicides, so as a holding pattern until we, you know are able to find genotypes that are more resistant and we can think about rewilding some of these things. You know, I think home gardeners will play a role. You can, mm. you can uh, contribute to rescuing, rescuing these, um, beautiful Australian motaceae from the brink of extinction. Mm. Well, look, Rod, it's a, you know, both a disturbing and, and very interesting area of research. And I think, um, you know, it's one of those ones where people haven't heard a lot about this. But if, uh, you know, if we can get people assisting and we can maybe, you know, just filling a bit of time with that until, till we work out, what species can resist this, then there might be a path forward that's um, that's positive. But thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago, and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you. Thanks, Rod. Uh, that was Rod Fensham from the University of Queensland. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. On the line with us now is Georgia Collins. She's from the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University in Eastern Health. Georgia, welcome to Einstein and Gogo. Hang on. Try that again. Sorry. Try again. Good morning. Very pleased to be here. It's good to chat to you. Now, we we met some time ago on Twitter, and I think you were in the U.S. at the time. Thankfully, you're back um, doing your um, your studies over there because you've been looking at um, food and food sustainability and how food operates in hospitals. I mean, my first question to you is why on earth did you get into this particular area? This seems like a real basket case of trouble. It certainly is. Um, food uh, in hospitals doesn't have the best reputation. Um, but if we think about the way that we get food to patients in hospitals, it's very, very complex. Um, I think of it, I guess, as probably the, the most commonly performed operation that happens in a hospital that no one ever talks about. Mm. So 
Um, because there is so much opportunity to do it better, um, this was something that really attracted me um, to researching and to looking um, at the whole food service uh, system in hospital. And also then to think about the, the environmental elements of it as well. Mm. I'm a dietitian and um, I've worked in a hospital for probably around uh, seven years now. Um, and I originally started um, seeing patients, as, as most clinical or hospital dietitians do. Um, and, and I moved then into working uh, as a food service dietitian, where my role in the hospital is to um, plan the menu, to evaluate the menu, to look at quality improvement projects and, and ways we can improve the whole process and system of getting food to patients. Um, and, yes, it was it was... Uh, great to connect with you on Twitter. Mm. That was uh, poor quality food, and and it is a shame that uh, hospital food has that reputation. Um, yeah. And it is a shame that it is often poor quality. But um, I think that that's something that we can all really work towards improving for a number of reasons. Yeah. One being yeah. the environmental impact, but as well as the nutrition. Um, and the, the comfort that hospital food serves to patients. Yeah. So one of the things I, I hadn't really thought about until I read some of the information you sent through was that food essentially has multiple roles in a hospital. So, you know, we, we just think of it, you know, that, that hospital food turning up. But, of course, in many cases, it's part of the individual's recovery, isn't it? And in addition, it can be, you know, if it's not done correctly, um, it can be very dangerous. You know, if you if you have an allergy or you're a di- diabetes sufferer, you know, like these things have to be very specifically catered for. So there is there is the sort of do no harm with the food and the recovery with the food as well. Yeah, spot on. So that's exactly right. We know that food is really important to our health. Um, in and there's lots of recommendations around eating eating a, a diet full of whole grains and fruit and vegetables. And this is so that we get a broad range of nutrients um, to, to give us good nutrition, which is, is so intrinsically linked to health. And this becomes, this is the case when we're um, sick and in hospital, but there is also the, um, there's a few added elements that happen um, in the hospital setting as well. So um, if you think about a, a sick patient or someone who's got burns or someone who's had um, an operation, they're going to need a lot more calories or energy to to repair themselves. And so we need to provide food that is not only healthy but is also quite energy dense and and full of protein to to help them um, build themselves up and recover. Mm. Mm. But at the same time, if you've ever been unwell, you'll know that you don't have an appetite, you might be sick and vomiting, um, you, you're fatigued, so you might not even be able to sit up and feed yourself. So it actually becomes a lot more complicated and difficult to get all the energy and protein and nutrients that we need in that situation. Um, and we we think of malnutrition as being something that affects people in, in you know, third world countries, but actually 30% of patients in hospital are malnourished. And that's because we haven't been able to to meet that um, meet that balance of of getting them all the calories and the nutrients and the protein that they need in order to to maintain their nutritional status. And mm. that patients who are malnourished are twice more likely to die than patients who are well nourished. So food needs to be seen as therapy in the hospital setting to give patients the best chance to recover 
um, and to be well. God, I've got so many questions here. So first of all, let me, let me throw one at you with regards to, to that element of getting well. We know that when we're sick at home, we, we tend towards our comfort foods. There's things that we probably wouldn't normally eat that we so that, you know, for me, it's chocolate and chicken noodle soup. That will get me through yep. anything, right? And, and yet we don't sort of have access to that in the hospital in the same way. I mean, how, how does that link up with sort of optimizing care there? Because it would seem to me as though listening more to the patients and saying, okay, these are the sorts of comforting foods that they utilize when they're ill normally are the, the best things to give them at that point so that their nutrition levels, you know, I mean, a, half a bar of chocolate might not be the best thing in the world, but if it's that or nothing, you know, it might be better for them to have that just to have some sugar and energy running through their body. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. So you're exactly right that something is better than nothing. Um, we use the phrase uh, making every mouthful count, uh, which really is is acknowledging that you're not going to be eating very much. So everything you put in your mouth needs to be loaded with calories and protein. The most, uh, the nutrient that provides us with the most calories is fat, actually. Right. More calories from, from fat than you get from um, carbohydrate or protein. So actually having, um, you know, having more fat or having fatty foods uh, if you're unwell is not the worst thing in my opinion. We do need to make make sure that we're not um, forgetting about protein and mm. other micronutrients, which are also really important to recovery. So it goes back to the menu. We need to have a hospital menu that provides options that people want to eat. But then we need to think about, well, hang on, we're catering for a very, very diverse population in the hospital. We've got people from different cultural backgrounds, different mm. ages. Um, and they're going to like different things. So my comfort food might be different to your comfort yep. food. Yep. Um, and so if we've got a menu that is able to to meet the range, meet the needs of a range of different page, people, then everyone's more likely to find something that they want to eat. But we don't have menu systems, and we don't have food service systems that are set up that way. Often there might only be two choices. Um, and in many hospitals in Victoria, that the model of menu is uh, meat and three veg. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and that's not what I eat very often. <laughs> yep. And meat and three veg tend not to be all that comforting. So it is complicated. Um, there are different ways of doing it better. Um, there are some great examples of hospitals that have a static menu. So it never changes, but it offers lots and lots and lots of options so there will be burgers, there'll be pizza, there'll be meat and three veg, um, there'll mm. be salads and soups. Um, but you have to have then in turn the kitchen set up yep. to be able to cook all those options. Yeah, because I suppose there's a risk, and this is where we get into sustainability and so forth, but there's the risk at the moment. I know with my partner was in hospital earlier in the year, and I can tell you over a three-day stay, every single meal she ate was something either I purchased or we ordered using a delivery service. So we just completely, um, you know, after one try, said no. The standard of food here is not not appropriate to care, and supplemented that. There, there seems to be that possibility if we don't sort this out and get this going a bit more effectively, is that people just supplement it with other things, and then the waste will just go up, and you know becomes a real nightmare for the staff doing doing the work that that provides that as well. Yeah. So hospital food is not only the thing that we eat, but we've got to consider all the resources that went into making that so we had mm. to grow the food. 
We had to transport the food, process the food, cook the food, serve the food. And that's a, that's a really intense operation. So that all takes, uh, resources, including energy, water, land, time of the food service staff, and we pay them, so mm. money. And if we throw that food out, firstly, we're missing the opportunity for nutrition if we don't supplement it with something else. Second, we're, we're throwing out all those resources, but we're also now we've got food waste and that is going to the bin. Um, in my hospital, in the hospitals I worked at, we did a study uh, where we found that every day across three hospitals, 322 kilograms of food is wasted and 100% went to landfill mm. or water. So none of it was reused, none of it was donated, none of it was composted. And so sending all that food to landfill is a really big problem for the environment. Not only then, as you said, all those things that we've lost in, in the meantime. Yeah. Well, Jojo, I've only got a minute left, but, um, what's next for you into, you're back now from the US, thankfully, just in the nick of time, I should say. Um, well done. But, uh, what's next now in this space? Cause it seems it's just such a huge area to transform this industry. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I am back from my Churchill Fellowship, uh, where I went to the US in February and, um, visited 12 hospitals to see what they were doing around um, green initiatives in their hospital food service. So I've got lots of ideas, lots of findings and recommendations. I'm also working with a group of colleagues from Monash Uni, um, Monash Sustainable Development Institute to explore hospital food services. Mm. They are sustainable, how we can make them more sustainable. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, altogether this body of research is going to produce some recommendations and findings and we can see change happening. So it's going to take a lot to get this change happening. Um, we're going to need um, policies from from state governments and, and hospitals, but we're also going to need people um, who are thinking more about the implications of hospital food and 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 um, ways we could do things differently. Yeah, look, it's a great area. And I have to say, like, if you're looking for someone to deliver food, I think the airlines have got nothing to do at the moment. Maybe they could help out. They've got their little food things that they offer. They've got nothing better to do at the moment because no one's getting on planes. But, uh, (laughs) Georgia, thanks so much for talking to us. It'd be great to get you back in the studio at some stage to continue this conversation because it's an area I think that we've all been affected by at some stage or another or will be at some stage in our lives. And making sure we have the right nutritional levels for our recovery and so forth is so important. Not to mention just the mere fact of enjoying the fact that you're eating a meal is, you know, one of the great things in our lives is having a good meal. So thanks so much. Welcome back to Australia. I'm glad you got back just in the nick of time and we will, um, we will chat again sometime soon. Thank you very much for having me, Shane. I'd be pleased to come back and continue the conversation. That'd be great. That was Georgia Collins folks from the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food at Monash University in Eastern Health. Triple R. And welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein at GoGo. We are on to our final guest for today. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Sanger. She is a research associate at the University of Tasmania and working on the tree projects, which is super fascinating, which is why we've got her on the line. Good morning, Jen. How are you going? Good morning. I'm good. Now, you're down in Hobart somewhere, yes? Yes, I am. Yep. Yeah, it's bloody cold in Melbourne. How are you going down there? 
Oh, the last couple of days have been a bit of a challenge. I think it was um, maybe Friday. I don't think it got above eight degrees down here, so a little hug, uh, a little heater was struggling to to warm our place. So, oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was down there uh, last year uh, teaching some communications programs and visiting a friend. One of my friends down there, she uh, is the owner of the old Spiky Bridge Peanut Butter. Um, business, which apparently is very popular. So, um, oh, wow. and, and yeah, a, I know, I know yeah, it. Yeah, well, as a peanut hater, I, you know, we have some interesting discussions because I don't eat nuts, but, um, yeah, yeah, apparently very good, very good. So now your work is super interesting, which is why we wanted to have a chat. You've been looking at how, um, I suppose removing old growth forests and replacing them with plantations affects the way they burn and how intensely and so forth they burn. So talk us through that research because I think a lot of people will probably have this innate sort of feeling that the old growth stuff burns hotter and faster because there's more of it. Now talk us through that. Yeah, so um, what our study looked at, um, we wanted to examine uh, the differences between um, old-growth forest, uh, forest that was not old-growth but but definitely classed as a mature forest, and then also looking at um, plantations, as you mentioned, but then also to the forests, the younger forests that regrow after clear fell logging as well. So we had those four different types of forests that we wanted to compare. So we looked at an area down in uh, south of Hobart mm-hmm. um, in the Huon Valley. Uh, it was pretty badly affected by the, the fires we had in 2009 in January. And um, so we used aerial photographs and satellite imagery to um, look at the how uh, badly the forests burnt. And what we actually found, it was the plantations and the, the regrowth that had grown back after clear fell logging uh, both of them had a really high um, ha- had really high severity fires in them um, compared to the mature forests and the old growth forests. Um, so, for instance, the the logging regrowth and the plantation about sixty percent of the time they had what we call a crown fire. But when you compare that to mature forests, that was only about twenty percent of the time. And then the old growth forests only had crown fires about ten percent of the time. Hmm. So a crown fire um, is different to one that just um, burns low on the, in the understory. Um, the fire, flames actually get right up into the tops of the trees. And um, eucalypt trees have all these uh, oils in them that were really quite flammable. So when the fire gets up into the canopy of those trees, it becomes really intense. Um, it becomes uh, really... Um, um, out of more of an out of control fire and mm-hmm. it just spreads a lot easier um, and it's a lot more difficult to control and these crown fires is what's the source of these ember attacks that that we heard a lot about last summer mm. so i've been trying to get around my head around this like why would it be more intense for these younger plantation scenarios than the old growth and and i was thinking and, and correct me if i'm wrong here but I, I was trying to think well why would it be more more intense and i was thinking well maybe it's because with the younger smaller trees you know per kilogram of tree there's more surface area to burn because they're, they're yeah. small. I mean, am I on the right track even vaguely with that thought? Yeah, you are definitely on the right track. Um, so, so when we compare the, the plantations and the regrowth compared to the old growth, they look a lot different. So the plantations and regrowth have a lot of small trees blowing, growing, um, quite closely together. And, um, 
what they generally have is they have branches going from um, near the ground level right up into the canopy. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this kind of this, this um, ladder. So when the flames get, um, get at the bottom of the trees, they can travel up the Mm, tree quite, quite easily. But when we compare that to our old growth forests, particularly in Victoria and um, Tasmania, what we have is these huge, very tall old eucalypt trees, which are quite tall. Um, the first branches of those trees are probably, they can be anywhere um, up to like 30, 50 metres um, above the ground. And what we ha- you have underneath is actually a rainforest understory. So you have a whole bunch of plants that, um, that uh, they don't burn as well as eucalypts. Um, they're a lot shady, uh, they, they create a lot of shade. And so there's generally a lot more moisture in the understory. So what happens when the, when the fires, um, tend to hit these old growth forests, it hits that understory rainforest layer and it doesn't, um, travel as fast as, and, and as easily as if it hit just pure eucalypt leaves. Mm. So this is an observation that, um, a lot of, um, uh, our first, the first people to um, go into these, um, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the first loggers to go into these areas, these, these were the observations that they found when they did see fires coming across. So it's an old, uh, yeah, a well-known mm. phenomenon. Interesting. Now, this this must be the sort of information that we, we then take, and I know in, in Tasmania there's been some success with regards to protecting forests and so forth over the years, in fact, probably more than any other state in the country. But this... This sort of information to me, given what's happened over the last, you know, six to 12 months in, in the rest of the country in particular, says that we basically shouldn't be logging all these things down and, rep- and pretending that we're doing the right thing by replacing them with younger growth, um, you know, forests. I mean, it seems pretty clear, right? Yeah, so our study is actually the fourth peer-reviewed study in the last six years. It's actually found this link between logging and increased fire risk. Um, so um, the evidence is out there. Um, unfortunately, um, in... Sorry, Jim, we've um, just lost your audio there. I might just get you to switch your video off if you if you don't mind. That, yeah, might, sure. that might help us out a little bit. Sorry, just... No um, yeah, just if you could just repeat yep. that last sentence, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so our study is actually, um, one of, uh, four studies, uh, which have shown this link between logging and increased fire risk in Australia. So, um, the evidence is there. We've, we've, um, uh, we know that this is a phenomenon. Um, unfortunately in Tasmania, like we did protect a lot of our old growth forests. Mm. Um, but there's, there's actually quite a lot still being logged down here and, um, there's just there's been a lot of resistance from our government um, about this issue. Um, we've we've presented the science to them, um, but they kind of come back with this argument that the science is is still debated. Um, and yeah, we have we've had a lot of um, there's a lot of heated argument about this topic, um, especially with the forestry industry, because their their standpoint has always been that logging forests remo- removes fuels and therefore mm. um, reduces the fire risk but that's just that's just uh, very misleading and there's not actually any evidence to back that up at all there actually yeah. hasn't been any papers at all that has shown that logging actually reduces the fire risk yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah um, I guess it's kind of parallel to 
the climate change argument. We know that this thing is happening, but um, I think it's been very slow. There's a lot of industry pressure um, um, to countering that argument. Yeah, I mean, certainly if... uh you know, if, if you take a logical approach, which is what the government claims they are doing, then the logical approach, if the if the evidence is not there to show which scenario is is the right one, then you wait until you get the evidence before you start pulling things down. Um, you know, go, going down one path if you're not sure is is certainly not the way to go. Jim, we've just got a minute to go. Um, so what's what's next on your list now that this this publication is out and so forth? What's the next thing you're going to target? Oh, I'm uh, uncertain at the moment. Um, I'd really like to look more into the um, the carbon elements of our, our forests, so mm. how much carbon is actually stored in our forests down here in Tasmania and, um, and what um, benefits would be provided in terms of um, carbon sequestration if we were to protect all of our forests. So at the moment, Tassie... Um, is in 2016 were the first jurisdiction to become carbon neutral. Yep. Um, and that's because our car- our forests absorb so much carbon. So there's mm. something like um, 750, so, sorry, 7,500 kilotons of carbon that's absorbed by our forests. Yeah. So. Well, it is certainly one of the most beautiful parts of the world, but don't tell, pe- no one's listening, so don't tell people that because we don't want everyone going down there and wrecking the joint. Um, it is it is gorgeous down there though. Jen, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with this ongoing work. I think it's really interesting when we can sort of uh, up, uproot these, sorry about the pun there, uproot these complete myths with regards to how some of these things work so that we can get some better policy in place. So good luck with the ongoing stuff and uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. Dr. Jennifer Sanger is from the uh, University of Tasmania, a research associate there and the project coordinator of the Tree Projects. It has been a pleasure uh, talking to you this morning and uh, we're looking forward very much to doing it again next week. Thanks for supporting Triple R by listening and for those of you who have supported us financially as well, we really appreciate that. It's been a you know, rough year for everyone and um, we're not immune to that either and so your support is really very much appreciated. I'm Dr Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll chat to you again next week. Have a fantastic Sunday. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.